Think about your life. Every day you wake up and fight to live in freedom and against fear. But Christ has already won the battle for our freedom. We didn't earn it. The battle was won when Jesus died on the cross. We don't deserve it. He gives us grace because of his great love for us. And our freedom was secured when Christ rose from the dead. The grace of God gives us freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom to live the life he calls us to. We aren't saved by trying harder. We aren't saved by trying to be good. Only Jesus can save us and set us free. So enjoy God's gift of grace in your life. Be at peace and live in freedom. Well, I'm so glad to see everybody here, and we especially want to welcome our guests. We're so grateful that you chose to come to Sugar Creek. We, we wanted that to happen. We prayed that God would bring people that would come and be our guest and, and visit us, and we're so grateful that, that He has brought you. Thank you for being here. This last week, we observed the 18th anniversary of 9-11. On September 11, 2001, Muslim extremists flew two passenger airplanes, fully loaded, fully fueled, into the twin towers of the World Trade Center, destroying those buildings and killing over 2,600 Americans. It was one of the most horrific days in American history. But it was also a day of unbelievable heroism by first responders that were there. One of those heroes was a man named Rick Rescorla. This is a picture of Rick. Rick was actually a Brit. He was born and raised in England, and he was in the uh, British military, and when he finished his tour of duty, then he moved to the United States, and he became the head of security at Morgan Stanley Bank. He was there for several years, and after he had been there for a little while, he came to the leadership of Morgan Stanley, and he said, you know, if Muslim extremists were going to destroy the World Trade Center, and I have to believe that this is a target, I think that they're more likely to be successful if they fly airplanes fully loaded with fuel into the building. And I've just got to believe that Osama bin Laden has this as a target. Isn't it amazing he came up with that conclusion? months and months before 9-11. And in fact, the History Channel did a special documentary on what they call the man who predicted 9-11. And he said, if you would give me the authorization, I would like to build an evacuation plan to be able to take care of all of our employees. Well, Morgan Stanley Bank had 2,800 employees in the South Tower spanning over 20 floors of that building. And they said, well, we doubt that this is ever going to happen, but if it will save lives, sure. You can come up with an evacuation plan, and you can put it to, together. And so he 
put together the organization of the evacuation plan. And he even had some dry runs with some individuals to sort of work through the kinks. And when that first plane went through the North Tower, the officials of the South Tower said, nobody leave the building, nobody evacuate. And Rick said, we're all evacuating. Because in his brain, if they brought a plane to the North Tower, there had to be another plane en route that was headed toward the South Tower. And so he went through the entire evacuation plan. By the time that the second plane now went through the South Tower, over 2,000 of the 2,800 Morgan Stanley employees were already safely out of the building. And when that plane hit that South Tower, you can imagine the tower shook and it created panic of the seven or 800 still in the stairwells trying to get out of that building. And immediately Rick picked up a bullhorn and he began to yell out encouragement. He said to them, and I quote, be proud to be an American. Everyone will be talking about you tomorrow. You can get through this. And he then ordered everybody in all the stairwells, they had walkie-talkies, all the stairwells to begin to sing God bless America, just to calm all the nerves. And people began to sing God bless America in all the stairwells of the, of the South Tower, and it reverberated all the way up. Did you know that every single employee of Morgan Stanley got out of that, that, that building safely except for six people? All six of those people got out too. When they got out, Rick called his wife, and here were his last words to her. If something should happen to me, I want you to know I've never been happier. You made my life. And then he turned around, and with his other five deputies, they went right back into that building to begin rescuing other people. And when the building collapsed, all six of them lost their lives. In case you're wondering what a hero looks like, take a look at this picture one more time. This man... He used encouragement to keep moving people down those stairs and to safety. Encouragement is a powerful force. And this morning I want to talk to you about the power of encouragement, about the power of affirmation. We're in a series going through the book of Galatians together, and we have reached Galatians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. Now, to be honest with you, this passage of Scripture is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to teach on a Sunday morning to all age groups that are here. But it is also filled with powerful truths, and we're going to try to pull these out as we go along. Encouragement is really the theme, if you think about it, in verses 6 to 10 of this passage of Scripture. So I'm going to get to the idea of affirmation and encouragement. 
But first, I want to look at verses 1 to 5. This moment in Christian history is the make-or-break moment of Christianity. There was nothing easy about the beginning of Christianity. It began with only a handful of Jewish followers. And the res- Jesus has resurrected, and the resurrected Christ began to appear to this group of Jewish believers. And he spent 40 days with them. In these 40 days, no doubt, Jesus went back and he taught them through some of the things he had taught them in the three and a half years he was with them. No doubt, Jesus began to help them and understand what the resur- or, or what the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was about. What did it mean? What was he doing? How did this fit into what the Bible taught? The Jewish Bible taught. And then, no doubt, he began to explain the same about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How did it all fit together? And Jesus would have taken them through the Jewish Bible and all the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, and he would have explained it all to them. And when he was seeing all the lights turn on of understanding of all of these guys, Jesus then ascended back into heaven. But he didn't leave them alone. He sent them the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit became the fuel, the power of the first century church, just like he is the fuel and power of the 21st century church and every century in between. He guided step by step through, for that early church, through everything that they faced. But don't underestimate how difficult this was. The hardest part of all of this is that the early church of Jewish believers faced a big question. How is it that we reach non-Jews? How do we reach Gentiles? The word Gentile simply means in the Jewish culture, everybody was either a Jew or a Gentile. A Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. And they faced two great problems in that first century. How do we reach people that are not Jews? You see, in first century, all their lives, they had been taught to repel, to reject people that were not Jewish. So how do we get past our first century Jewish upbringing of rejection toward non-Jews and actually love these Gentiles? Now, let me just pause for a second. I'm talking about first century Jews, not 21st century Jews. 21st century Jews are totally incorporated into the culture. They bless, they help. They are a powerful force for good in America. But in first century, these Jews had been taught to push away any Gentile. So how is it that we began to reach them and actually love Gentiles to Christ? There was a second question they had to answer, and it was simply this. Do Gentiles have to first convert to Judaism and then accept the Jewish Messiah? in order to be saved? Paul, a Jew, and Barnabas, his friend, a Jew, had been called by God to be the first missionaries to the Gentiles. 
And they boarded a ship, and off they went. And they went to a region called Galatia. That's why this book is called Galatians. They went to a region called Galatia, and town after town after town, they preached the simple gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. And Gentiles were coming to Christ by the hundreds. It was amazing. It was more than they ever anticipated. And they were birthing churches in one town after another, after another, after another. And they went back and they encouraged and they strengthened and they taught and they got everybody ready. And after they had done that, they thought, okay, it's time. And they got back on the ship and they went back home. But it wasn't but a few weeks when all of a sudden these messengers appeared and said to Paul, Paul, it's worse than you ever dreamed. When you left, each one of those churches in Galatia, Jewish teachers came in behind you and said, who is this Paul? He is a liar. Nobody knows him. None of the apostles know anything about him. He has told you a lie. In order for you to receive the Jewish Messiah, you must first of all be a Jewish convert. Into the Jewish religion, you've got to observe all the rules and all the regulations and all the requirements, and then you can accept the Jewish Messiah. And now everybody's confused. Who do we believe, Paul or these Jewish teachers? And we don't know what to do. We don't know what the next step is. There was confusion everywhere. Paul was furious and he was afraid. He was so fearful. What is going to happen next? And so Paul and Barnabas left immediately and went immediately to Jerusalem. They gathered all the apostles together and they said, we've got to hash this out. This begins Galatians chapter 2 and verse 1. And notice what it says. And I went back to Jerusalem again. This time with Barnabas and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. And while I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church, and I shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. And even that question came up, only because some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. It was actually the moment of make or break of Christianity at the very beginning. And the Holy Spirit led these apostles and these elders that had gathered there to affirm the simple message that Paul had taught. 
So what was affirmed that day is that people are saved, Jew and Gentile, red and yellow, black and white. Every person is saved by faith in Christ alone and nothing else. Faith in Christ alone and nothing else. No church can save you. No good deeds can save you. No rules and regulations and rituals can save you. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. And today we Gentiles in this room, we have Jewish believers who've accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah that are part of our church. But 99% of the people in this congregation probably are Gentiles. And today we Gentiles gather to worship Jesus Christ as Christ followers only because these first century Jewish followers got it right. They got it right. And this moment, this moment was that important. It wasn't just that that was happening in this passage of Scripture. There was something that was sort of an undercurrent that was happening in these first ten verses of chapter 2 of Galatians. There was an affirmation happening for Paul and he needed it. It's amazing to me as I read commentators that talk about this passage of Scripture and they act like Paul is somehow Superman and Paul didn't ever need to be affirmed and he never needed to be encouraged. But the truth is, Paul was flesh and blood. He was just a person and he needed the encouragement that day. And you and I, every one of us, every single person in this room, we need encouragement and affirmation from time to time in our lives too. Great or small, young or old, every one of us need moments of encouragement in our lives too. I want to talk to you about that because that is the underlining theme of verses 6 to 10 in this passage of Scripture. This encouragement that is being taught in this passage first begins with the most important affirmation that comes from God, not people. Before you turn anywhere else for encouragement in the dark days and the hurtful days and the lonely days of your life, before you turn anywhere else, turn to God first, not someone else. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was criticized and lied about. He was berated and belittled on a normal basis of his life, day after day after day. But what gave Paul encouragement was knowing that God was at work in his life. That God was in the middle of what he was doing. No matter what he faced, he was doing the will of God. 
All of Galatians was written after that meeting in Jerusalem. And I don't think it's by accident that Paul makes this statement in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. The most powerful affirmation that you can ever receive about you is what God has to say to you and about you from His Word. It is what will sustain you. It is what will be the driving force in your life when everything else around you is caving in. What God says about you. So what does God say about you? The Bible says that God creates, created you. And it says that God knows you and me and the recesses of our heart that nobody else sees. God knows. And in the midst of knowing everything, everything, about you and me. The Bible says that God still loves us. That's the wonder of it all. Jeremiah 31.3 says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you to myself. What I'm saying is that when times get hard, run to your heavenly Father first. There was a man named Ben Walter Hooper. Here is a picture of Ben Hooper. He was in the early, where's that picture? There he is. He was in the early 1900s the governor of Tennessee. Two terms. He brought such reform during his time that some of the things, some of the laws that he helped bring to pass of integrity and honesty in doing business in the state are still laws today. He had an amazing impact. But Ben Hooper was the one guy <laughs> less likely to ever be governor of anything, much less the state of Tennessee. When Ben Hooper was an old man, he asked his pastor to go out and eat lunch with him, and for the first time in his life, he told his story to this pastor. Ben Hooper explained to him that he was born out of wedlock, and the shame, he says, of my community was directly pointed at my mother and I. He said every time that we went to town, people just stared at us. And he said especially they stared into my face. They wanted to see if they could figure out who my daddy was in that town. Kids' parents told his, their kids, don't have anything to do with me. And he said all my life as I was growing up in school, when lunchtime came, I always ate alone. 
because nobody else would be my friend. He said, when I was in my early teenage years, I began to attend a little church, and one day I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. But he said, I always sat on the back row. And he said, before the service was done, I would always get up, sneak out, because I didn't want anybody to be able to look me in the face and say to me, what is a boy like you doing in our church? So he said, one day, before the service was finished, I got up like I always did to sneak out of church, but this time there was a hand on my shoulder, and I looked up, and it was the pastor. And he said he just looked into my face, and I know what he was doing. He was trying to figure out who my daddy was. And he said to me, well, boy, you are the child of, and then he paused, and he said, you are the child of God. He said to me, yes, sir, I can see a striking resemblance of God in your face. Your daddy is almighty God. Now you go and you claim your inheritance from your heavenly father. And Ben Hooper said, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was somebody He said, I left that church that day a different person. And in fact, ever since I've looked back on that day and said, that day was the first day of my life. That's the power, the power of affirmation. I don't know today if you are running from something or to something. I don't know if you're hurting or you're confused, but here's what I do know. I do know that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are the child of Almighty God. And I do know this, that the God of all creation is on your side because you belong to His family. And I do know this, that you are a new creation. You are redeemed, you are justified, you are forgiven, you are empowered with the very Holy Spirit of God that has come to live inside of you because you are a child of Almighty God. I do know that. And I do know that he is remaking you and remolding you into the image of Jesus Christ himself and that one day when you stand before the Holy God in heaven, your journey will be finished and you will be like Jesus Christ. For, because he who has begun a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. That's what I do know about you.
And I know that about me, and I know that no matter what else I face, that when I have God in my corner, loving me and caring me for me and bringing me through, that's the affirmation that will get me to the other side. What I'm saying to you is, in the deepest, darkest days that you walk through, the greatest power of affirmation in your life, if you'll run back to God, the greatest affirmation that you will get is what God says to you and what God says about you in His Word. Let God affirm your life today. Now, as I read this passage of Scripture, I read about the affirmation of God, but it's not the only thing I read. I also read about the affirmation of others, and it also matters. In verse 3 of this passage of Scripture, here is Paul saying, and they supported me. It meant something to him. They supported me. And then in verse 7 of Galatians 2, on the contrary, they recognize that I have been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter has been to the circumcised. They are affirming Paul's ministry. And then in verse 9, in fact, Peter James, Peter, and John, who were pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given to me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued to work with the Jews. What he is describing is, is that they affirm his message. They affirm his ministry, and they affirm his personhood. We're co-workers together. You, you keep going, Paul. You keep pushing forward because we affirm you. He was affirmed that day. And I'm going to tell you, it meant something to him. It meant something to him. It isn't wrong to appreciate being appreciated. It isn't wrong to appreciate being affirmed and, and being encouraged. The word affirm is a Latin word that means to strengthen. Affirming someone is to strengthen them by recognizing and verbalizing what they may or may not yet see about themselves. And we all need it. I married the greatest encourager in the whole world. And I married her. My wife, like no one else that I have ever seen, I've ever met, just knows how to encourage, and she has done that in my life for all of our marriage, day after day after day after day. even at times in which I didn't believe in myself. 
she believed in me. She has an ability to sort through the rubble of Mark Hartman and find something good and bring it out and tell me. And almost every day of our marriage, she has done that in my life. And not just me. We, we go to a store together, and we go to the checkout counter, and she'll say to the woman at the checkout counter, I, I didn't know she had earrings on. I never noticed any earrings. And she'll say, those are the most beautiful earrings. Where did you get those? Those are just wonderful. They look so beautiful on you. And I'm thinking, earrings? Or you have just beautiful hair, and she will point out something about that person. And to be honest with you, I can go through the checkout counter, and if they had a lineup of people who had waited on me, I wouldn't be able to pick them out. I don't ever see anybody like that. And my wife sees everything. And she finds something special about every person, and she is such an encourager. She's amazing. She's been discipling our whole mar- me my whole marriage about this whole encouragement thing, and I am better and better at encouraging, but I will never reach her level. Be an encourager. It doesn't take any talent to criticize. No talent whatsoever. It doesn't take any talent to gripe. But I'm going to tell you, it takes an amazing thing to happen in your and my life to affirm. Why? Because we have to kind of get out of our own bodies and actually see other people and actually get into their shoes and find something genuine and real about their lives and pull it out and bring it out and affirm their life. It takes a special person to be that kind of thing. And you and I, God has called us to be affirmers, to be encouragers, to find, to look at other people, to see the things in their life of value, to go through the ashes if we have to and find something special in their life and pull it out and say, I noticed this about you. One of the great talents in the world is the talent of affirming, the talent of encouraging. I love you. I'm proud of you. I believe in you. You can do this. Do you remember the times that people said that kind of thing to you and it gave you new energy? Well, it does for everyone. There's three rules for effective encouragers. The first is is affirmation must be sincere. Affirmation is not flattery. Affirmation is not flattery. It's seeing something true and sharing it. It is having an open heart to see someone other than yourself. Affirmation must be specific. Don't do general stuff. Look for some little thing. Look at, for some special 
part of their life. Sift through and see the nugget and pull it out. Affirmation must be specific. Third, affirmation must be shared. Well, I was thinking about you. Well, who knows that? No, you got to open your mouth. You got to you got to type it out. You got to speak it out. It's it's sharing it. It's bringing out something and bringing it to the attention of the person you're affirming. It's sharing it, not just thinking about it. You and I can become affirmers and encouragers and we can literally change our family. We can literally change our offices. We can literally change our friends. We can change our environment around us because of the power of affirmation. There's one more thing, and I'm done, and it's this. Affirmation only matters if you accept it. No matter how often God affirms you, no matter how often others affirm you, it's only as good as you're willing to bring in. If you keep pushing it away, don't affirm me. It doesn't matter. If you keep pushing it away, the power of it will never be yours. It's okay to receive it and to bring it near. Paul lived with such opposition. He he lived with such complaint and such hatred against him. More than likely, he had to battle his own thoughts on a regular basis. And Paul had learned the great power of grabbing hold of the affirmation and receiving it. And I think that's exactly what's happening in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, when it says they simply kept hearing. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorify God because of me. That's not arrogance. I got to tell you, I think that truth must have helped Paul overcome the guilt of his past and the criticism of his present to know his life is mattering. He's making a difference. Today, God is using others in your life to affirm you. Let God use you to affirm others in your life. Now, one more thing I want to say. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you could know Him today. Would you give your heart to Him? Would you accept Jesus Christ into your life? You can do that this morning. The God who created you, you can now know and become a child of His. And I hope this morning you'll make that decision to give your heart to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be here today, for your word to penetrate our hearts and the truth of it to become ours. And God, I pray for every person here that has never received Jesus Christ as Savior that this would be the day of their salvation. Father, I pray that you would move in hearts that are visiting our church today, and there is a sense in their heart this, this church just feels like home, and today they would make this their church home and join this church. God, move in our hearts today, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.